hello people on the podcast and members. And of course, if you are a member on YouTube, the picture you'll be looking at is a replica of Salem Village Meeting House. And the replica, it um, depicts the meeting house as it was in 1692. It was built on the grounds of the Rebecca Nurse Homestead in 1984. It was constructed as a set for the movie Three Sovereigns for Sarah, the story of Sarah Coyce and her sisters, Rebecca Nurse and Mary Etsy. So yeah, if you see that picture, that's what you're looking at. Shepherd was, was forced to sue for his salary for the third year of his contract, which the select men had refused to pay. After a long, bitter and very public dispute that created a lasting division within Rowley, the parties eventually reached a financial settlement. Shepherd was soon invited to preach in nearby Chebacca, a district of Ipswich, which is now the town of Essex. Settlers of the district lived up to seven miles away from Ipswich Church, so they were attempting to gain permission from Ipswich and the general court to establish a parish, build a meeting house, and hire a minister. However, objections were raised by the people living in the centre of Ipswich, and the General Court had to appoint a commission to sort things out. In the meantime, Shepherd moved on to a position in Lynn, and Reverend John Wise soon began his long and successful career in Chebacca Parish. While the religious discord in Rowley and Chebacca Chebacca was substantial, let's say. It never led directly to, oh, well, indirectly, actually, to witch trials. Both communities would see only a handful of accusations in 1692. Two Essex County communities that did suffer from serious factional conflict in the 1670s and 1680s would be at the centre of the witchcraft outbreak. Salem and Andover. Andover was established in 1642, but by the 1680s it was undergoing growing pains. The construction of a new meeting house in 1680 necessitated the establishment of a new seating plan, which caused considerable consternation. This was followed by a division concerning the successor to Francis Dane. The old and infirm minister had served Andover for more than 30 years and now needed help. In 1682, Thomas Bernard was hired to assist Dane, but the town did not feel it could afford to pay two ministers. Factions developed around the two men, with Barnard's supporters concentrated in the older northern part of town and Dane's followers tending to reside in the more recently settled southern part of Andover. The differences in Andover seemed to have followed English regional lines as well, as Dean had strong support among his fellow Hertfordshire men, as well as Scots and other settlers from the north and the west of England, while Barnard's followers came from the west country. Remarkably, groups from these different regions would retain close bonds through marriage alliances until the early 18th century. Tensions would build between the factions in 1689, when men from the north of Andover tried to close a tavern opened in the southern end of the town by Dane's kinsman, William Chandler. Salem Village would develop similar factional problems, largely forming around control of the ministry. It was unclear who had the right to hire and fire the minister, 
and this ambiguity would prove the ideal breeding ground for factionalism. As previously noted, the general court only permitted the village to build a meeting house and hire a minister to preach in it, not to create a church. The saints' church elders who lived in Salem village were actually members of the Salem town church or other neighbouring churches. The details of the hiring of the village's first minister, James Bailey, are not recorded, but it appears that the freemen of the village assumed this responsibility, for it was all families of the village, not just the saints, who attended worship services. Indeed, in 1673 the villagers as a group noted to retain Bailey as their very own minister. The congregation's assumption of religious decision-making clearly did not sit well with the Lowe's Salem Town Saints, who lived within the boundaries of the village. They believed that they alone held the power to hire a minister. Signs of trouble quickly emerged. In 1673, even as the villagers agreed to keep on Bailey, 14 residents did not pay their taxes to support his ministry. By 1679, a powerful minority of villagers, led by Nathaniel Putnam and Bray Wilkins, called for Bailey's removal. Unfortunately, given the villagers' political ambiguity, there was no simple way to resolve such conflicts, and amnesty boiled over, literally. Bailey's opponents petitioned the general court, which, after considerable wrangling, approved the current system of letting the entire village agree on the appointment of ministers, at least until Salem Village established a covenant church. Even this did not resolve the conflict. In 1680, the anti-Bailey factioned against the majority of seats on the Salem Village Committee and forced Bailey to step down. In 1682, he accepted a call to be minister in Killingworth, Connecticut, and left Salem Village and its bitter factionalism behind. It soon became clear that the problem lay with the villagers and not with Bailey, for they would quickly have similar problems with their next minister. In April 1680, Nathaniel Putnam led a committee dominated by opponents of Bailey, who were chosen to search for his replacement. In November 1680, the inhabitants voted to hire Reverend George Burroughs, born in England, raised in Roxbury. Burroughs graduated from Harvard in 1670, a year after James Bailey. At the time, Harvard was a small institution. There were ten graduates in Bailey's class and only four in Burroughs, so the men would have known each other fairly well. <clears throat> fairly well, sorry. And they may have corresponded or even discussed Salem Village. Even had Bailey won, warned him against accepting the position, Burroughs was probably quite desperate for the job. He had served as minister in Falmouth, Maine, until the community was abandoned in August 1676, during King Philip's War. Like most of his Maine neighbours, Burroughs sought refuge in Massachusetts, living in Salisbury. He served for a time as the assistant to Elder Reverend John Wheelwright, and then performed briefly as interim pastor after Wheelwright's death in 1679. Perhaps, too, Burroughs saw the Salem village position as temporary. 
He never purchased land in Essex County and never sold his abandoned homestead in Maine, so it is possible he was simply biding his time, waiting for the resettlement of Falmouth. He would not need to buy a home in Salem Village, as it turned out. Soon after he was hired, the town agreed to build a parsonage for him. Burris tenure was shorter and more turbulent than Bailey's. In April 1682, merely a year and a half after coming to Salem, one of Burris' parishioners wrote to him complaining that Brother is against brother, and neighbours against neighbours, all quarrelling, smiting one another. By the spring of the following year, the village committee stopped paying Burroughs, so he left town. The resettlement of Falmouth was underway, and Burroughs was preparing to resume his old post there. When he returned to Salem on May 3rd, 1683, to meet with the village committee to square his accounts, Captain John Putnam and Burroughs arrested for debt. Putnam had regularly advanced the minister money in anticipation of receiving his salary. So when the village cut off the salary, Putnam sued Burroughs to ensure his payment, or his repayment. The issue was eventually settled out of court, but it demonstrated just how acrimonious village politics had become. Furthermore, the image of the minister being arrested by Essex County Marshal must have made a lasting impression on many villagers. Even as the village began to suffer internal conflicts, it also endured a series of boundary disputes with the neighbouring towns of Topsfield, Andover and Wenham. In a time when two grants, well, town grants, sometimes overlapped in and boundary service were often imprecise, such disputes, they were common. These disagreements were serious matters, for they determined which community collected taxes on which properties. In 1679, Salem Village complained to the General Court that Wenham was attempting to claim lands that would deprive the village of many acres of lands and several families, as well as the taxes these people paid to support the ministry. The wife of John Dodge of Salem Village voiced concern over the rates and threatened that if the Wenham men came there for rates, they would make the blood run their ears. On another occasion, Goody Dodge exchanged blows with a party of Wenham officials, only to have her elderly neighbour Goodman Edwards save her from further abuse when he entered the fray wielding a hoe. Tensions over disputed lands were even higher with neighbouring Topsfield. In this case, both Salem and Topsfield's parent town, Ipswich, had made some overlapping grants, so there were two claimants to some parcels. John Putnam Senior of Salem Village owned much of the contested acreage. In 1682, Jacob Town, John Howe, and Thomas Baker met with Putnam, asserting that they had liberty from the town of Topsfield to clear trees from lands Putnam claimed on the Topsfield side of the town line. The dispute between Putnam and the Topsfield men would not be resolved until long after the witch trials. Meanwhile, ministerial troubles continued in the village, Following Burroughs' departure, almost a year passed before the village found a replacement. In February 1684, Diodat Lawson was hired. Lawson, the son of an English Puritan minister, was educated at Cambridge and had immigrated to New England in the 1670s. He served for almost two years as pastor at Edgar Town on Martha's Vineyard. By 1682, he had moved to Boston, where he worked in some security pursuit until moving to Salem Village. 
Inevitably, there was conflict. A group of villagers pressed Salem Town to gain permission to establish a covenanted church and to have Lawson fully ordained as their minister. In 1686, the village committee, including Captain John Putnam and his nephew Thomas Putnam, supported this effort. Others were opposed. In January 1687, Jobs Swinton, Joseph Hutchinson, Daniel Andrew and Andrew's brother-in-law, Joseph Porter, filed a petition expressing grievances over the possible ordination of Lawson. Hutchinson seems to have been particularly troubled. He had donated the land for the meeting house. Now he began to fence in the property and actively farm part of it, reducing access to the meeting house to a solitary gate. Factions formed around Lawson. The next month, arbitrators from Salem Town sided with the opponents of ordination and encouraged the villagers to desist at present the ordination of the Reverend Mr Lawson till your spirits are better quieted and composed. Within a year, Lawson had to move on. Though, so it speaks, it says Lawson moved on, but I'm pretty sure he had no choice. In a span of 16 years, three ministers had departed Salem Village due to factionalism. This was far from the norm. During the 1680s, a total of 63 men were hired as ministers by New England towns. They would serve an average of 22 years in those positions. As the Salem villagers admitted in a 1695 petition to increase Mather and other divines, we have had three ministers removed already, and by every removal our differences have been rather aggravated. The community would enjoy yet more conflict, as it sought and hired a fourth minister. In the spring of 1689, Salem Village entered negotiations with Reverend Samuel Paris, a Harvard educator and apparently desperate enough to consider taking the vacancy in the contentious village. Paris was born into a Puritan merchant family in London in 1653. In the late 1650s, his family migrated to Barbados, where his father, Thomas, was a merchant and sugar plantation owner. When Samuel was approximately 17, Thomas sent him to Massachusetts to attend Harvard College. He probably came to Massachusetts in the company of his uncle, Thomas Oxenbridge, who migrated from Barbados in 1670 to become minister at Boston's first church. Samuel's path had been laid out. Yet, in 1673, the path took a turn. Samuel's father died. So he returned to Barbados after completing perhaps three years of Harvard's seven-year course of study, which culminated with the Master of Divinity degree. Some historians have suggested that he might have left Harvard because his father's death meant that he could no longer afford to substantiate the cost. However, Thomas had left Samuel all of his Barbados estate, worth perhaps about 7,000, an immense sum, especially for a 20-year-old bachelor, and he should have been more than set for life. Had he remained in Massachusetts, he would have been among the wealthiest men in the colony. Clearly, he left Harvard because he no longer wanted to pursue a career in ministry. Instead, he would be a merchant like his late father. Back in Barbados, Paris worked as a sugar merchant and broker. His income was enhanced by leasing the family sugar plantation. Yet, within a few years, his inheritance had dwindled. Exactly how and what degree is unclear, but it seems to have been close to a total financial meltdown. 
This is rather surprising, since under most circumstances about the only thing that kept a Barbados sugar plantation owner from amassing substantial wealth and death from tropical disease. Well, some historians have suggested that the Paris plantation was among the many destroyed in the huge hurricane that devastated the island in 1675. A decline in the price of sugar in May could have also been a factor. Regardless, Paris sold his properties in Barbados and moved to Boston in 1680 or early 1681. Here, he married Elizabeth Eldridge or Eldred and continued to work as a merchant, but his reduced circumstances were soon apparent. In March 1682, he bought his first property in Boston, purchasing a shop and wall from merchant Richard Harris for £270. Yet, he had to borrow an additional £420 from Harris to purchase goods and begin operating as a merchant. A year later, Harris sued Paris to recover the loan. His biographer suggests Paris was a man driven to succeed, to provide the financial security for himself and his family that he had known as a youth. He studies at Harvard, his sugar plantation and his work as a Boston merchant should have almost guaranteed considerable wealth and status, but Paris had failed at all of these undertakings. By 1689, his Harvard schoolmates were by and large accomplished ministers and respected members of their community. Meanwhile, the Boston waterfront was filled with the mansions and warehouse of prosperous, prosperous merchants. Paris must have been particularly troubled by the rags-to-riches career of William Phipps, whose warehouse sat next to Paris's in Boston. In the aftermath of the sale and witch trials, quoting from the Book of Numbers, Paris averred that God had been righteously spitting in my face. In any event, in the spring and summer of 1685, Paris served as temporary minister in the central Massachusetts frontier town of Stowe. He continued to work as a merchant in Boston, but enjoyed his work in Stowe enough to seek a permanent ministerial appointment. On November the 15th, 1688, a committee from Salem Village began discussions with Paris and soon invited him to give a sermon in the village on November the 25th. After the sermon, the congregation voted to offer the position to Paris. On December the 10th, they made him a formal offer, beginning what would turn into months of hard bargaining over the position. The village committee offered Paris the same salary paid to Diodat Lawson, £60 a year with no expectations of an increase in the future. Although the money was below average, Salem Town would finally allow the new minister to be ordained. So, unlike his predecessors, he would enjoy the full rights and authority of his office. Another benefit was that he could live in the village and own the parsonage. Paris <coughs> told the committee he would consider the offer <coughs> and that they should know in good time. Yet, he never got back to the man. Instead, he waited for the village to invite him to Salem again to discuss the offer. This time, he conditionally accept a salary of £60, with a third to be in currency rather than provisions. Hard currency was scarce in the early Massachusetts and henceforth more than its face value. Paris provided the villagers a long list of other terms and also asked that he be considered for a pay increase in the future should the community prosper though he was willing to receive a reduction should it not. 
he asked to have control over what was given for provisions, and that he received them at the price now stated or lower, should prices drop. As the colony had recently entered into a war, the foodstuffs were sometimes in short. Supply and prices were increasing. Paris was effectively seeking a hedge against inflation. Further, he asked for free firewood, as well as that contributions from people outside the congregation be considered a bonus over above his salary. This concession, he noted, had been made to Reverend Lawson. In more affluent Salem town, Reverend John Higgins' annual salary was £100 plus 40 cords of firewood. When John Hale first came to Beverly in 1664, his salary was £70 and upon his marriage it was raised to £74. When Joseph Capon was hired in Topsfield in 1681, he was offered £75. The Salem village, by contrast, struggled to pay its minister. James Bailey was paid £40 plus £7 for firewood. That salary was eventually increased to £55. In 1679-80, to 80, when the Bailey dispute reached Boston, the General Court ordered the village to increase its salary from £55 to £60. Bailey would receive a much more comfortable salary of £70 in Killingworth, Connecticut. In the end, after considerable haggling and debating, the villagers ironed out a contract with Paris that met most of his demand. He began to preach in the village in July 1689, fully eight months after discussions began. Yet it soon became clear that the negotiations were not over. At Paris's encouragement, at the October 10th meeting, a group of villagers voted with only one object- objection to give Paris ownership of the parsonage and surrounding the two acres of land. At the same time, this group voted to mollify a 1682 vote, whereby the village had made it illegal to give or sell the parsonage to anyone. It was most unusual for a minister to be given as opposed to leased a parsonage, especially under such questionable circumstances. Unfortunately, a list of the names of the villagers present at the meeting does not survive. We do know that the men appointed to carry out the property transfer consisted entirely of members of the prominent Putnam family and their allies, so it seems likely that they dominated the meeting. Giving the property to Paris was a decision that would be questioned and debated by the villagers for years. From the time Salem villagers first approached Paris to the time they voted to deed him their parsonage, almost a year had passed. Their negotiations were usually lengthy and complex, suggesting several things. First, Paris appears to have studied Salem village well and fully understood what was waiting for him. He knew about past problems with ministers and the details of their contracts. Considering that he insisted on a specific benefit given to Deodat Lawson, it is likely that he discussed the situation with the former minister, who lived in Boston at the time. Second, Paris wanted no more of the insecurity that he had faced on the Barbados and in Boston. He drove a hard bargain, one that secured respectability and a modest level of economic security. Third, years of disputes not only made villagers desperate for a minister who could bring peace but also meant that few were interested in the job. In fact, so notorious was the village's reputation that no one with a Harvard degree would be tempted to consider the position. Paris apparently had no competition. Despite the months of negotiation, 
presumably because no one else was interested. He must have realised this and sensed the desperation. He knew he could push hard in negotiations. In the end, Paris won his demands, but also sowed the seeds of further strife in the community. Surely, even before Paris was ordained, some villagers must have realised that they had settled for far less than they had needed, and gotten a hard-nosed merchant rather than man of God, capable of uniting a village. <laughs> That's the next part of the Salem Witch Trials, guys. So now they have a new minister, and uh, <clears throat> I guess... Most of the troubles, they are coming from the villages, right? They're not coming from the actual ministers when we think about it. They're coming from the villages. Um, but with this new minister, we have to understand now they have a minister that's not really um, as qualified as the rest. So I don't know where it's going to go from there. Could just all go downhill, but we'll have to wait and see. Thank you for listening and many blessings.